Welcome to the Successful Farming Soil Health Podcast, where we tell the stories and share the lessons of leaders in the modern soil health movement. Thank you for joining us. Here's Successful Farming Crops Editor, Bill Spiegel. Steve Groff didn't set out to be a leader in the cover crop industry. The Lancaster County, Pennsylvania farmer merely wanted to stop massive ditches caused by water erosion on his family farm. His foray into no-till farming led to the use of cover crops, and as you'll learn, Groff was a driving force in the widespread adoption of radishes as a major component of cover crop blends around the world. This was before anything was talked about with soil health, um, any of those dynamics we're familiar with today. It just I just had a feeling in myself that it just wasn't right. So that's when I started no-till. We uh, rented a planter from the local conservation district and then in two years, 1984, bought our first no-till planter. Farming has always been in Groff's blood, so much so that he wanted to skip high school in order to run the family farm. I probably never had a day in my life that I didn't want to be a farmer. I was actually trying to convince my mom not to go to high school, if you can believe that. <laughs> uh, I'm very glad I went. Okay, don't get me wrong. I had a great experience and everything, but I knew what I wanted to do. The day I graduated, I was a farmer. Fortunately, my dad gave me space. It wasn't always easy, mm-hmm. but it gave me space to do some things. Um, and it took about 10 or 15 years for him to really embrace the no-till concept before he allowed me to do it on the whole farm. How many acres were you guys farming then back at that Oh, time? back then, you know, small Pennsylvania farm, about 175. Uh, in the context of where we live, that's pretty normal. Now, i got to tell you. We've always had uh, vegetables, uh, tomatoes, and some sweet corn, and some pumpkins and squash. So that is what helps uh, pay the bills in such a small farm. But um, so yeah, relatively small size, but in the context of where we're from, um, fairly normal. We'll get more to those food crops then here in a bit. But uh, what were some of the other crops you were growing? Alfalfa hay was a big one. Um, we have and still have to this day quite a few Amish in our area, and they, they're always needing some hay. They never can grow enough. So uh, that was a big thing. My dad pretty much did that. And, boy, I threw a lot of hay bales back in my day. Um, glad we went to these big bales now. But uh, So that was a big one, but basically just corn and, and that alfalfa hay and some, some squash and some tomatoes. Sweet corn came on a little bit later, but... Um, uh, very few soybeans at that point uh, in the 80s. Uh, we, we brought a few more of them on later, but that's about it. How that time in between you first starting out farming into the mid-90s mm-hmm. when you became really well known mm-hmm. for some of the work that we'll talk about, what was that time period like? How are you kind of feeling your way through farming and no-till at that time? Well, I think it, it's based on that I'm naturally curious and I'm interested in learning. I get this question frequently, where did you graduate from college? And I jokingly say, well, I'm still in college. <laughs> I never graduated, which is true. Uh, and, and the point is I'm a self-learner. I absorb things. Um, I mean, back in the 80s, I went to every meeting there was that had anything to do with no-till. At that point, it was just about no-till, really. So I, I learned, I read books that were out. There really wasn't a lot, but when there was something, I read it. And I started trying some things. And I remember in the mid to late 80s, when I was six, seven years into this, my cousin who was farming next to us said, when are you going to sell the plow? I said, well, I can't sell the plow. We have to plow for our vegetables. 
And that's what I thought. And then it was 1994 where I saw a presentation from a USDA researcher talking about planting no-till tomatoes. And I thought, wow, I could be 100% no-till if this works. So I drove two and a half hours to see his research in Beltsville, Maryland. And sure enough, there it was. So I like, I have to do this. I was primed. And so that's why 1995 is I haven't tilled anything since 1995. When you first started doing your research on no-till, mm-hmm. um, we didn't have glyphosate. We didn't have a lot of the products that we have now. Yeah. Uh, no-till planters, as, yeah. as you alluded to. So, so certainly a, a shift in uh, technology mm-hmm. came along to help others pave the mm-hmm. way. But you kind of had to learn old school. Well, for instance, row cleaners, there was no row cleaners available early on. Uh, I literally made my own row cleaners. I bolted them on fertilizer cleaners and they kind of fertilizer openers Mm -hmm. and they kind of trailed off them. It was just this little press wheel that I had screwed in bolts around uh, to make it into a a very nowadays, a very weak row cleaner, but it, it sort of worked. And then when row cleaners came out, well, I bought them. Um, and so, uh, yeah, we had to make some of our own things at that time. Now there's so much stuff in the market. It's confusing of what to get, mm-hmm. but that was part of the pioneering effort. And, but I enjoyed that. I mean, that, that to me was made, it made farming fun. You know, you had to figure it out. Probably folks first heard the name Steve Groff when they became familiar with the tillage radish. Talk a little bit about how that developed and, yeah. and, and where that took you. In 1995, when I was first starting to do public speaking, I was in Maryland, and um, I asked the question. It was at that point I was just talking about no-till. I asked a question that do cover crops pay if you are into no-till long term, meaning five or more years? And Dr. Ray Weil was another speaker at that event, and uh, afterwards he came up to me and said, "Would you be interested in doing some research in your farm to see if?" you know, cover crops pay. And I'm like, well, sure. I mean, I felt honored, uh, literally. And so that began a 12 year run in 1995 of some, where we kept out uh, replicated plots uh, where we planted cover crops and then we just, we didn't plant cover crops and we planted our normal cash crops through there, corn, beans, some vegetables once in a while. And what happened four years into that in 1999, we had a drought and we saw 28 bushel yield increase on our corn the previous four years had cover crops. That was my epiphany. That was my moment on my farm. I answered the question that year, do cover crops pay? Absolutely. So that led then to other research that brought on the tillage radish. How did you determine that it that it paid? I mean, there's so many other factors that can go into yeah. that kind of a, a scenario. So what was it about the cover crops that you felt? It, from a sheer standpoint of looking at yield, we build up the soil to be able to resist dry weather. So um, that's essentially what we did. And, you know, you can do the math. 28 bushels of corn, uh, even on a bad price year, is going to pay for a couple years of cover crop seeds and an establishment of it. And that's really what I was basing it on at that point. It was just the economics. We still didn't really know all the other benefits that cover crops can give with lower fertilizer and lower pesticides all around everything. And then, you know, just to society in general by keeping our nutrients on our farm. I'm just saying that that was the moment where I was all in. 
I, I was all in from then on. I'm going to plant cover crops everywhere I can. Uh, so tillage radish, then how did that become yeah. the product? I mean, the product for you. Well, I should write a book someday on that. Uh, so I'll try to, to synthesize it here. The intent originally was to look at radishes to suppress nematodes and soybeans. And this was some, uh, Ray Wall had taken a, a trip to Brazil and had seen where they were using radishes to do that. And um, so we thought, well, that's something that he'd like to try. And he asked if I'd be interested. I'm like, sure. Well, he couldn't find the same genetics that, he, that they had down here, up here. And so he just started grabbing things off the shelf. And we started planting all different kinds of brassicas. And what struck me the first time I really noticed it, I mean, I, of course, I've helped him plant it and everything, but it was the following spring when these radishes had winter killed and they had left these like cavities or holes in the ground. And I thought that was kind of cool. Water infiltration. It was kind of like you could see it was going to be mm-hmm. better. But what really caught my eye when I was planting corn through the plots, at that point, I had a frame mounted colder on my planter. And that was pretty popular in Pennsylvania because of our rocks. And, you know, it doesn't pull out the double discs. So you have a frame mount of colder. It keeps the double discs in the ground. Mm-hmm. So for us, these frame mount of colders are like the thing. Well, when I went through the plots, the no-till colder went into the hub where I went through the radish plots. It was more mellow. And I saw this from the tractor. And I, I could see the soil was just softer. And so we're like, wow, that's interesting. Didn't expect to see that. He didn't either. And I said, is this going in the same other in the other farms? He said, yeah, we're seeing that. Then we took the yields, and all the radish plots had higher corn yields. And when we did soybeans, there was higher soybeans yields later on. I thought, wow, there's something going on here. And so then we started to ask the question, well, which is the best radish? So over a period of several years, um, we fine-tuned it. We found out that the long tubers with the long tap roots gave us the highest yields. So that radish was selected based on subsequent yields which is the farmer way of thinking. Sure. And and so then I, um, with with Ray's blessing, I took it upon myself to continue. I got all the radish seeds I could everywhere I could. He did too. And we selected the best genetics. And then I wanted to grow some for seed because I, I asked him where to get the seed. He said, well, there's, there's no commercial seed available of this kind. So I planted 10 acres to grow for seed, uh, having no experience at all. Uh, and trying to do this. And I had I had someone in Oregon that I had known, and I asked them, how am I going to harvest this? They said, well, we usually swath it in Oregon. But I said, we can't do that in Pennsylvania because we might get rain in a row mm-hmm. and stop wind rail and stuff. So long story short, the first three hours when the combine was in the field, we thought we were up the creek without a paddle. We couldn't thrash the seeds. We couldn't thrash them out. It was just pods going in the tank. And we eventually kind of figured that out with the, in the combine. And so the, I thought I was going to grow enough seed for like four years. Well, word started getting out. People started calling me. We sold out the first year. So I went from 10 acres of production to 28 acres the second year. Uh, sold out. Uh, went to 43 acres third year, something like that. Sold out. Went to 70 acres. Sold out. Went to Oregon to find people to grow the seed. And no one was really interested. They didn't know who I was. And I eventually found some seed growers in Oregon around 2008. So I developed a seed company called Steve Groff Seeds. I was just selling right out of my farm. And, and what year would this have been? I started that in 2004. Okay. That's when I first grew my own seed. So that was kind of like the birth of the first cover crop seed company dedicated solely to, to selling cover crop seeds. 
so yeah, I just kind of kind of took off from there. I mean, that's kind of the first part of my story. For a lot of people in no-till and soil health, the tillage radish mm-hmm. was kind of the gateway to soil health. I mean, that was that was our first entry into cover crops. It it kind of revolutionized the industry. You know, I never thought of it that way because I was kind of in the inside of it. But several people have told me that. But some people say it was a spark plug to help get interest because it was a radish. Who ever heard of planting yeah. radishes? And it was the talk of the coffee shops. And the thing about it was you could see an instant result. When you plant cereal rye or annual rye grass, eh, it's a little hard to see instant results sometimes. But to see the holes in the ground and actually see and feel the mellow soil, that's the thing that made the radishes so popular so quick. Farmers could instantly see results. And I think that was a hook to get guys interested in cover crops. What's interesting now is radishes now have kind of taken a back seat to the whole cover crop movement. But they were one of the key factors for getting the cover crop movement off the ground. You became kind of famous in this world. Kind of netted you a lot of accolade. No-till farmer product of the year at the no-till conference. Three, Three years running. And... Then things kind of changed a little bit for you. Coming up, Steve Groff talks about losing the tillage radish, but how he continues to drive innovation in the cover crop industry with a new company. And later, his quick tips for anyone wanting to start their own journey toward improved soil health. This podcast is brought to you by Pivot BioProven. Predictable, productive, weatherproof. Get a reliable partner. Get the new nitrogen. Get Pivot BioProven. We all know a few fair-weather folks. They're around when the food comes out. Oh, yeah. Nowhere to be found when the cows are out. With all life's uncertainties, you want a reliable partner. With you, rain or shine. When it comes to nitrogen, there's a new, predictable choice. Pivot BioProven. The tiny nitrogen-producing microbes that have a big impact on your bottom line. Pivot BioProven. Predictable. Productive. Weatherproof. Get a reliable partner. Get the new nitrogen. Get Pivot Bio Proven. I was always interested in business uh, to a degree and, and, and kind of enjoyed that, figuring that out. And I knew that the opportunity that I had was very significant and had global implications. Just, just with all the interest that I got, I brought in some partners to help run the company. And, you know, it's just one of those things where it did go well for several years. And then really to make a long story short, just things went south and pretty much uh, I lost the seed company out of that. Very tough time, very tough time in life because you kind of go from, you know, all the notoriety and everything and to, uh, you know, we ran into some, you know, various, various forms of difficulties and so forth. But, you know, just coming through that, learned a lot of valuable lessons and everything. And and, um, and now I'm through that, that's in the past, in the rearview mirror. And I'm focused totally on cover crop coaching and educating others. The, the challenge we have right now is that there's, there's just a lack of good cover crop education for the amount of new farmers being interested in coming on board. So that's my role. That's where I fit right now. What are some of the universal truths about soil health and no-till that would apply in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, to Hutchinson, Kansas, to Johannesburg, South Africa. The successful farmers that are experiencing the benefits of soil health, the things that they have in common is they are going to have living roots in the soil 
pretty much year round, or I, you know, I'll say as much as possible. Uh, so you're having a plant growing, being a cash crop or a cover crop, or now this whole thing of companion cropping is coming in where we're growing multiple species of cash crops together. I mean, mixed species cover crops is kind of here. It's, it's been here for a while. It works. So having a living root in the ground and then kind of going along with that is having the soil covered, which is kind of directly related to having something living. And, and that does so much. It keeps the soil cooler. Uh, which in the summer is good. In the winter can be, or in the spring, it can be a challenge, but we have equipment with row cleaners and things like that. You know, there's technology available to overcome some of the nuances of this. And in diversity, uh, and that is expressed in a, a lot of ways, you know, particularly as many cash crops as you can market. The more the better. If you can have good markets, definitely going to ramp things up and the diversity of species. So we're just basically trying to farm in nature's image. We're trying to mimic nature where we can. I mean, there's limitations to it, but that's key. The, the final thing, and this is maybe the hardest hurdle for a lot of people, and I'm actually you know faced with it myself, is to, to have animals on the farm. Uh, that is actually the ideal. Everywhere I go, the people who have animals are probably taking it the farthest. And, and when I say that, um, because if you do these things I just said, you can reduce your inputs. You can reduce your fertilizer. Maybe not the first year, but look at it in a 10-year plan, and you can begin to reduce inputs, and sometimes that's where the money is made. So having animals in your farm is definitely the ideal if you can do it. It can be a challenge sometimes, but it definitely is, is an ideal. So when we talk about soil health, Steve, mm -hmm. um, I think that means different things to, to different mm -hmm. people. Um, and I'm sure that you have found that in, in your career. So uh, I guess what is your definition of soil health? It is hard to have a standard definition because uh, it depends where you're starting. I would like to say my definition would include something about you're leaving the soil in, in, in better condition than when you found it. I mean, I don't even know what I can achieve on my farm. What I do know is I can be better. Even after 20 years of this, I can be better. So some of the, the ways I like to measure soil health is just simply infiltration rates of, uh, of rainwater. Because if you're in an area that's dry, one of the things that's challenging for soil health People to, or people who want to get into soil health is, well, I can't grow these cover crops. I'm going to waste water. Well, it takes cover crops. It takes living roots. It takes the soil being covered to create a healthier soil to eventually capture and hold more rainwater. So eventually you have to jump on the merry-go-round to try to make this work. And so that, that again, comes down to some, some management, but to be able to... Um, to look at your soil and, and get a get a literal feel for it. It's kind of like you have people who are serious coffee drinkers. They know good coffee when they taste it. Or wine drinkers. You know good wine when you taste it. You know good soil when you smell it. You know good soil when you feel it, when you see it. So my definition is more very simplistic. A healthy soil is something that can literally grow crops with less inputs than we previously did. And I'll just throw one more thing in here that's start, starting to be talked about more is, is a higher quality product. Nutritional density is kind of the words that are going around now. That is a result of a healthy soil. What do we need to do to get more people to embrace a, a soil health mentality? Mm -hmm. There's plenty of people out there that really want to learn now. That's my audience, uh, those who want to learn. 
there's probably more incentives coming down the, the, the line here very soon. When I say the market, the people who buy our products is starting to show some strong indicators that they want to buy their product, their corn, the beans, the wheat. They want to buy it from farms who are practicing some sort of soil health efforts. I welcome that. Uh, That's certainly better than government regulations forcing us to do this stuff. You know, at this point, I'm probably doing, I don't think there's any government regulation that I wouldn't be meeting now because because I'm already doing it. But there's nothing better than the market incentivizing people to take a second look at this. Now, there's going to be some people, some successful people who they got their program down and and if they don't need to, they're never going to change. I'm not after that crowd uh, at this point. There's so many people wanting to learn more that it's the low-hanging fruit, I guess. And that's what we're going after because we'll probably see the most results from our time and effort. You have seen the fruits of your labor pay off, obviously, with what's your your work with the tillage radish. Mm-hmm. Uh, but now your farm continues to include the cash crops, but you also have vegetables that meet a quality standard that mm-hmm. really is pretty amazing. And talk about that. Yeah, I've been, I guess you'd say, intrigued by the whole nutritional density component for a while. I think back... About 15 years ago, I got my tomatoes tested and some squash tested to see how much nutrients I had in. And I started asking, well, what should they be? Well, I found out nobody knows. Uh, So the benchmark we have is pretty much the average. So you can go on USDA's website and you can see the average nutritional value of a butternut squash, for instance. It's there. It's easy to find. Uh, so that is right now our benchmark. We're using the average. We don't, when you ask, and I have some people I know who've been within the USDA who have asked, but nobody really knows what that average is based on and when it was taken exactly. But be that as it may, I'm using that average now. So I have gotten on a couple occasions my Bridges uh, butternut squash tested, and I'm testing higher in every nutrient that we tested for. And I contribute that to the soil health way we grow things. And what I'm trying to figure out now is what is the missing pieces? What is the missing nutrients that I might not have naturally in my soil? I believe cover crops and soil health practices we're using are unlocking things that we never had access to before. But I also believe we've essentially used, I'll use the word mind out, some of the micros because we don't get paid for that. We don't get paid for quality. We get paid for yield. So if a micronutrient doesn't influence yield, why bother paying to get it on? Right now, I'm just trying to basically see the benchmark. Where am I at with everything else? I'm trying to figure it out. It kind of stands to reason then that if this is happening with your vegetable crops Mm -hmm. and and you attribute that in large part to what you've accomplished with soil health and farmers who are practicing soil health on cash crops such as Mm -hmm. corn, field corn or Mm -hmm. sweet corn, Mm -hmm. uh, wheat, things of that nature... Mm -hmm. Same type of situation might apply. Yeah. I just I listed today about, you know, over a dozen companies who have listed some sort of plan that is associated with nutritional or health or increased benefits or actually re- reduced fertilizer use. And these are big name companies. I failed to list ADM, for instance. And uh, a gentleman come up to me afterwards. He works for ADM. He said, we have a plan in place for higher quality product. And I was... It did not surprise me, uh, but I knew Cargill has it, Tyson Foods has it, 
I mean, big name companies that Wrangler jeans. Yeah, Wrangler jeans is encouraging uh, soil health practices in cotton, particularly growing cover crops. And at some point, that will be either incentivized or required for farmers to show some sort of effort to growing things in a more environmentally friendly way. The public desires that. Now, we as farmers have tended to react against that in the past. I see it as an opportunity. We have a good story to tell. It doesn't take me long to explain to a non-farmer the value of cover crops, and they get it. And so why not market that? That's what I'm thinking. Steve, you have uh, partly in your experience, you've had quite a career and you're so pretty young. You've got a lot of career ahead of you. Mm-hmm. But I think one of the things that farmers and ranchers, um, even landowners will really appreciate is your newest endeavor or a new endeavor mm-hmm. for you, the cover crop yeah, it, the cover crop coaching involves a, a several different aspects, but I chose the name very strategically. I don't consider myself a cover crop cheerleader. Uh, nothing against the cheerleaders out there. We need them. That's been helpful in getting the attention of the cover crop opportunities. I'm the coach. I'm helping run the plays. I'm on the field, so to speak. Um, I want to be with the farmers. I am a farmer. My hands are calloused. I want to help farmers with practical advice. Named a no-till legend by No-Till Farmer Magazine at the National No-Till Conference in 2017, Steve Groff has built his Cover Crop Innovators website to include weekly webinars, articles, and videos to help farmers in their quest to improve soil health. Learn more at CoverCropInnovators.com. This podcast is brought to you by Pivot BioProven. Predictable, productive, weatherproof. Get a reliable partner, get the new nitrogen, get Pivot Bio Proven. We all know a few fair weather folks. They're around when the food comes out. Oh, yeah. Nowhere to be found when the cows are out. With all life's uncertainties, you want a reliable partner. With you, rain or shine. When it comes to nitrogen, there's a new predictable choice. Pivot Bio Proven. The tiny nitrogen producing microbes that have a big impact on your bottom line. Pivot Bio Proven. Predictable. Productive. Weatherproof. Get a reliable partner. Get the new nitrogen. Get Pivot Bio Proven. Thanks for joining us for the Soil Health Podcast from Successful Farming. I'm Bill Spiegel.